This episode of the American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the Partnership for International Birding, offering birders nearly 200 scheduled tours to destinations in the Americas, Asia, Africa, and Oceania. Tour hallmarks include small groups of six to eight participants, excellent lodging and logistics, proven bird finding with the best local guides, and unmatched support for bird conservation. With your help, the Partnership for International Birding can add to the more than 80,000 acres they've already helped to protect. To learn more, go to PIBird.com or call toll-free at 888-203-7464, extension 912. Hello and welcome to another episode of the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm your host, Nate Swick, and look, I know that the whole birding in the mass media thing is a regular topic for me in this space. I, I, I can't help it. I find the way that birders and birding are perceived by the general public and how that is sort of borne out in the national non-birding, non-nature media, and especially how that has changed over the years that I've been birding, but also sort of in the decades before that to be, to be endlessly interesting. Um, so there were a couple new inclusions to that milieu in the last month or so that are probably worth noting. And they both portray birding in a really positive light. In, in one case, birding is shown as this means of achieving goodwill and community among lots of different people in New York. This was an article in the New York Times that sort of hinges on the, the feminist bird club, but also it's really just about birding in New York City, sort of generally, and how it brings people from lots of different walks of life together. This is not the first New York Times piece on birding. They've, they've had a lot of those in the last year, year and a half. There must be an editor there who is a, who is a birder. And the second is an article from Outside Magazine, a piece about dating a birder, written from the perspective of the non-birding partner. And it is fun and, and funny in that sort of we've all been there sort of way. And it, it really leans on this whole embrace your passion, geek, chic, or, or whatever movement that we're, we're in the middle of right now. I think birding has really, really benefited from this. I think I know I've talked about this before. Uh, the birder character as enthusiastic and endearing is, is definitely at a high watermark these days. Um, it was not that long ago that birders were portrayed as either the creepy, awkward men or the older khaki clad women. And now we have a whole spectrum of outdoors loving people of all stripes in our camp, which is great. And it also seems that the, you know, the awkward men and the khaki clad women are not not seen as the pejorative that they once were, all sort of enveloped in this passionate umbrella, good-natured passion, I should add, which it has always been, in my experience, a real staple of birding. And nowhere, perhaps, is this expressed more readily than on the satirical website The Onion, which has had a lot of birder and ornithological-based headlines and articles. I am convinced that there is a birder on the staff at The Onion, and I would like to find this person and have them on this podcast. The whole This whole spiel was not originally intended as a means to seek this person, but if it does, then it will have been worth it. I'll have the links to those pieces in the show notes, by the way. I hope you enjoy them as much as I did. On the show today, I have some advice for a new birder, and I request some from you. But first, an unplanned part two to the discussion Ted Floyd and I had about birding with kids. That one had some issues that we wanted to address. For instance, uh, we sort of uh, we were sort of missing the moms. Seattle writer and birder Bryony Angel is here to help me fix that. And don't worry, this isn't becoming a, a parenting podcast. There should be something in there for everyone. And all that after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the middle of July 2018. 
Railroad activity seems to be inversely correlated with the temperature across much of the continent, with extreme heat and relatively low numbers of vagrants in the ABA area for the last couple weeks, with a couple Code 5 exceptions. First, an ABA Code 5 Zenaida dove was found near Miami, Florida earlier in the month. The species historically nested in the Florida Keys, but has been considered a rarity in modern times. Most ABA area records of this Caribbean species come from the Keys, so this bird near Miami is notable for being so far north and so far inland. It was found at a series of rain-filled pools between Miami and Homestead, among a lot of other doves, including morning and white-winged, which means lucky birders were able to get the Zenaida slam. On the exact opposite side of the continent, a Siberian chiffchaff was seen near Utkiakvik, Alaska, the North Slope town formerly known as Barrow. This was an actively molting bird, which caused a lot of confusion among birders trying to puzzle out its identity. Old world warblers can be tough enough when they're in fresh plumage. Siberian chiffchaff, still called common chiffchaff on the ABA checklist, is known from a handful of records in the Bering Sea Islands and the Aleutians. This represents the first mainland record of the species in North America. A couple first records for the period include a really amazing one from Wyoming. A young California condor turned up near Laramie, Wyoming for a first record since uh, maybe the Pleistocene? I don't know about the range of these birds in the very, very distant past. In any case, the bird was wing-tagged and identified as an individual that was released in northern Arizona earlier this year. The bird appeared perfectly healthy aside from a serious case of wanderlust. One more first for the period, also from the west, a Louisiana water thrush was found near Ketchum, Idaho, the latest of what has been a pretty good late spring summer for eastern warblers in the west. This was a short roundup of notable rarities in the ABA area for this period. For all your rare bird needs, please head to the ABA blog every Friday morning. That is at blog.aba.org. You can also join our Rare Bird Alert Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash ABA rare, or follow the rarity Twitter feed at ABA Bird Alert. When Ted Floyd and I did our Birding Without Tears episode a few weeks ago, we were called to the carpet, justifiably, I should add, by the fact that we were only telling half of the story. Uh, Ted and I are both birding dads, and our experiences are similar, but not exactly like those of birding moms. And plus, you know, birding with kids is a topic that we love to explore here, and I know I have a lot of listeners who enjoy it as well. So to help Tell us the rest of the story. I'm joined by Seattle-based writer and naturalist uh, Bryony Angel. She has written quite a bit in various outlets on nature exploration with kids, and I'm, I'm happy she's able to join us today. Uh, welcome, Bryony. Thank you. Before we get too deep into it, how old are your children, and, and how do you engage in the natural world with them? Well, my, my son is eight, and my daughter just turned one. So the way I engage with them is very different uh, because yeah. of their ages. <laughs> Although I have to say my son was a perfect uh, trial run for what I'm now doing with my daughter. Yeah. Um, with both of the children, uh, when they're young and I can still carry them, uh, I would get out in the field as much as I can uh, while they're still light enough. And they generally sleep, so it's not disruptive. Yeah. I can... I can, uh, you know, look at a bird and walk some distance uh, to make it worthwhile. Um, but since my son has been mobile, uh, I've let a few years go by before trying to get him into birding. Mm-hmm. But just around the house, uh, it was really easy just to, to have his help filling bird feeders, helping wash them, just pointing out all the yard birds and, and also asking him about bird song that he hears. Uh, and I've, I've been doing that since he was about three. Yeah, I've also found, you know, with my, my children that um, 
when they hear something, they they know that dad most most times knows what it is, <laughs> and like they'll just yeah. ask, you know, what is that? That's something that they're they're de- always definitely curious about. I found I found the same thing. Do you have uh, resources and and books and stuff out around your house just for them to pick up? Oh, I do, but you know, my my son is not naturally interested in birds. Um, I get the it's uh, yet to be seen whether my daughter will be. Right. Um, so I mean, he knows where all the the field guides are, and and we read the occasional nature book. But he's pretty typical of his age. He's really into cars and <laughs> video games. Yeah, and no, I hear but, that. <laughs> but one thing one thing that has stuck. Uh, which I'm a proud birder mother to admit, <laughs> is that he, that early training of birding by ear, he can hear through layers of sound and he'll sometimes comment on something that even, you know, I might've missed, you know, when I was distracted doing something else. So he's definitely in tune with bird song, whether he likes it or not. <laughs> that's, that's stuck. Yeah, that is really interesting. I, I've found something similar as well. You brought up some good points in your, your criticism of the original episode. And I wanted to hit on some of them because I, I think that they were the sort of thing that listeners would be interested in too. Um, I think we understand that as parents, you sort of have limited free time a lot of the time, even, even with a supportive partner. When you are birding with kids, and I'm kind of using that term in quotes, uh, what does a satisfying outing look like to you? That's a great question. Um, it's not about me. <laughs> um, if if I am purposefully going out birding with my kids, if they're young enough, it is about me, as I mentioned earlier, you know, and they're just asleep on my person. Right. Um, but once they're kids with you know, personality and opinions. Mm-hmm. I would opinions say a, su- <laughs> a successful day is going to be not super long, and it's going to have to involve other stuff on the, the field trip aside from just birds. And mm-hmm. this is key: bringing one of their pals with them. Uh, I, I no longer take my son out birding with me just by himself. Yeah. I, it would. It's just torture for me. Uh, his, it just, yeah, he has zero interest. But there's this. He's very peer oriented at this age. Um, as he, he's eight, and uh, that helps facilitate getting out. I would say for anything, even hiking, um, anything in the outdoors. If if there's a friend along, it's it's more likely to be successful. You've written about that sort of peer orientation of that age groups, and it, yeah, you're absolutely right. Have you had any success with community walks, like sort of externally coordinated walks that are specifically aimed at people with kids, with families? I haven't done that yet. I, re- I really want to. Yeah, and yeah, I yeah. know Seattle, Seattle Audubon, uh, the organization that I'm active with in, in my community, they do neighborhood bird walks, including ones that are hosted by young men. And so, uh, you know, these young guys who I've, who I know, you know, through the birding community, they're really cool. And I would think, I think if I got my son in front of one of them, he might be inspired to listen a little more intently. I mean, these guys are in their early thirties, so they're, it's not like they're teenagers, but I I like seeing the youth leading these walks. I Uh, I think it's, it speaks more to the kids who are on the walks. So many bird walks are like already sort of adult oriented, which makes sense. I mean, that's that's the audience of a lot of Audubon chapters and bird clubs. But it seems like it could be a really great opportunity to attract young professionals with kids, which has always been sort of a really tough nut to crack for these sort of groups. 
Yes, I agree. Um, that's definitely something that is changing in certainly in the organization that I'm involved with. Um, Seattle has got a huge resources. So I grew up in Seattle, so I've seen the change. Um, just the the options for summer camp are staggering compared yeah. to what yeah. was available when I was a kid back in the you know the late seventies and the early eighties. Yeah. And that includes nature camps and, uh, mm-hmm. but there's, I think the, the traditional approach has been, um, separate stuff for adults and separate stuff for kids. And now there's the merging, you know, the, the bringing of the parents with the children, almost like cub, cub scouts, which I mean, that's one of the reasons why cub scouts is so, or, you know, the scouts now, yeah, um, drop the boys bit. And it's because of that time with your parents with some kind of extra outdoor adventure thrown in. I know. I mean, it's something that is is still relatively new. I know that there are some bird festivals that offer family-friendly field trips. Uh, Lower Rio Grande Valley does that, uh, which I think is great. It will grow the birding community in addition to like getting kids into it in the, fa- in the sense that, you know, people are more inclined to do things if they can do this sort of activity with their families. The only problem, of course, being is that, you know, with all volunteer-led organizations, that you really have to find that perfect person to do it, uh, which can be a difficult thing. Yeah, that, that's true. Um, there is a, but this was prior to my having children. I uh, went, I've been going to this festival in Eastern Washington for years. It's the Othello, Othello Crane Festival. Othello is the town where it takes place. And one thing I noticed about them is that they have their, all of their bus tours are kid-friendly. And they're fun, you know, the novelty of being on a school bus, yeah, the yeah. instant gratification of seeing these gigantic birds yes. in the hundreds or thousands. Right, yeah. And then the duration of the tour is only two hours. So it just, it's just a magical combination. Yeah, it hits a lot of points, yeah. Kid-friendly. Um, but you're right, it's... It's few and far between, and I have noticed some some tours even have age minimums for these bird festivals. And then some things they the kid activities are things like crafts, which mm-hmm. to me don't um, they, they appeal to certain kids certainly, but uh, yes, not everyone. They do not appeal to my son. No, I yeah. Hear that, yeah, and I mean my 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 son is more impressed by skins yeah. or live birds and. Uh, you mentioned spectacles. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I totally agree. I was going to bring that up. You know, one of the things that I have been meaning to do with my son now that he's he's nine and can travel a little bit longer distances is take them to a place where you can see these sort of giant spectacles of birds where you don't have to work too hard to see them too. Um, you know, half a million tundra swans is, is quite a sight. I mean, that's the sort of thing that can really, really grab a kid, even if it's not you know, not a rare bird or anything. Kids, I mean, they love that stuff. Yeah, and I've even found just uh, circumstantial birding. Sometimes you know, we take a ferry to the San Juan oh, Islands yeah, yeah, frequently. Yeah, okay. I mean, but Seattle, Puget Sound is, is a very ferry-driven community. Mm-hmm. And so oftentimes on the the pilings around the ferries, you know, just as you're either unloading or unloading, uh, you can just look to your right or left and there's a cormorant on, a, on you know, on eggs or there's, there's cormorant chicks and uh, right there, you know, five feet away. So that's, that can be really cool to point that out to. Seattle's got to be great for that too. I mean, the proximity of people to wildlife is actually really fantastic up there. I would agree. Yes. <laughs> Not just for, for birds, but I mean, just the marine, the marine life is 
yeah, it's we're we're really lucky. So, what sort of places do you look for when you know you are going to be heading out with into the field with your kids? Well, I tend to do seasonal birding. Um, I mm-hmm. say probably I don't bird more than four times a year with my kids. If the purpose is to go birding with them, um, I get out a lot more right. frequently on my own. So, I look for stuff that is. Um, well, for instance, the winter birding um, up in the Skagit Valley, uh, north of Seattle, there are lots of Arctic migrants. So like you mentioned, the tundra swans, we've got a few tundra swans, but definitely it's more uh, trumpeter swans and snow, snow geese. And the snow geese are especially impressive. They just blanket the fields up there and they're, mm-hmm. it's, you know, it's all flat farmland it's a classic river delta and so you can see for miles and you can you can even see the fields of white up ahead and and know where to go and uh, those fields of white being the snow geese of course uh so that's impressive to kids plus there are no there are no leaves on the trees and so you can see everything you can see these you know blot these blots uh which turn out to be eagles or mm-hmm. rough-legged hawks and every once in a while uh, but my kids haven't seen one yet but um we see short-eared owls which is always a, oh those are so always cool. a crowd pleaser <laughs> yeah. yeah there's something yeah, about owls yeah they just those are real um I would say owls are real conversion birds for anyone who's a new birder. Yeah, absolutely. There's a there's a park that's right next to a like a shopping mall in my hometown of Greensboro, and there are barred owls that nest there every year. And it's just like super convenient to go and just find the nest. I mean, they can hide like barred owls do, but a lot of times when they're when they're on when they have chicks in the nest, like they're moving quite a bit, bringing food pretty constantly. And it's just so cool to see, you know, not just my kids when I bring them there and show it to them, but, but everybody, like there's this whole community that comes around these owls is a real sense of ownership among these owls in the neighborhood. It's really neat to see. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, a, I mean, to your point, that's another thing that, that, you know, if you, if someone wants to get their kids out to see a bird, if there's a well-known nest somewhere and the bird is, I wouldn't, I mean, habituated isn't probably the right word, but the bird is not stressed by visits. Right. That's a great place to take your kid. You know, it's just the, it's the instant gratification. The kids, kids just don't have a lot of patience to, for the, the the chase, you know, as the, the, the adults enjoy so much. And, uh, and they want to be able to see it easily. You know, if it's going to be hard to see, they're going to lose interest really quick. And then the other, I've mentioned this before, but something where they're, you know, you, they could have a pal along who might be halfway interested. Yeah. You mentioned a little bit about both Ted and I, when we talked, we were both dads, but there are some issues that maybe we are not entirely aware of, uh, particularly having to do with getting out in sort of off the beaten path sort of places, maybe safety issues. Do you think there are issues that, that moms who are taking their kids birding need to worry about more than perhaps, perhaps I need to? Well, that's a good question. I I've never been, I've never experienced any kind of unease when I'm out with my kids or, you know, because of often cases that I'm with another parent, uh, another mom usually. So there's just this, um, just sort of safety in numbers that, that we're experiencing. And maybe it has to do with, we've got boys. I don't, I don't know. Um, but certainly, if you know the times I've I've birded by myself or with with a female companion, there's there's definitely things have come up. Um, I don't know. Children are kind of a buffer. They just 
Yeah. There, there's something they bring out the best in people or the worst, but you know, the worst usually <laughs> is just somebody being grumpy. Yeah. People are inclined to keep their mouth shut. Yeah. When their kids around at, at least that, or at least that. be on their be- better behavior. Right. 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 I think we, we both agree that birding with kids is a lot about what the parent wants as much or, or more than what the kids want a lot of time. And there's, you know, a certain amount of managing expectations that is part of it. Are there certain ways to make the experience good for the birding parent and fun for the kids? How, how have you managed to accomplish that? Uh, I am, this is one of my mantras. I'm a sucker for a walk. So if I can (laughs) combine exercise for me, exercise for my kid and Mm -hmm. seeing birds, that is a satisfying Mm -hmm. day for me. So there are some short hikes in these areas where, where there is really satisfying birding. Um, And another river Delta down South of Seattle, which is better in the springtime, there's a boardwalk, which uh, any kind of novelty, uh, like a boardwalk is, is a total, total uh, green light for kids. And so that's about a two mile loop walk. And, Mm -hmm. you know, the kids are contained, they can't get into trouble so they could run off ahead (laughs) and then double back. And I mean, so those, the sort of environments where, you know, they're safe and there's a, they've got some freedom to run, run around and there's, there's terrific birding uh, just because it's that time of the year. Uh, That is, that's a perfect day with kids. Do you, do you have any advice for parents with maybe older kids? You know, a lot of times as kids get older, they're so, their life kind of gets filled with all these activities and stuff. Um, I, I'm, I'm seeing a little bit of it. My son is interested in sports. So like we have stuff like every weekend. Uh, how do you find time to bird when your life can be so hectic? Well, that I have a perfect answer for that. I grew up birding uh, with my parents and I was also very busy but without fail, we would bird at least once a year on New Year's, New Year's Day or New Year's Eve. And so this was, a, this was our family tradition. We'd go up to the, again, the Skagit River Valley. It's just this, it's a Shangri-La of birdiness. <laughs> and so we knew that that was, that was always going to be something we did. And my, my sister and I, I'm a twin, so uh, we, we knew this was always coming. And our, our interest in birds kind of waned as teenagers. We definitely came back to it yeah. in our 20s. But it, we were welcome to invite our girlfriends and, you know, as many people as we could fit in the car. And, and it was just a, it was a fun day of just kind of tailgating, you know, drinking hot coffee and yeah. Picking up sandwiches, and those days the um, salmon runs were really impressive. And so we would drive up the Skagit River and see uh, just hundreds of eagles. Well, maybe I'm, that's exaggerating. I would say maybe you know, <laughs> one hundred plus eagles um, yeah. along the Skagit feeding on these salmon that had spawned and died. And and it was just fascinating to go walk along the river bank because we'd pull off and and there'd be this basically the carcass that would still be alive i mean it was impressive (laughs) how long those salmon can persist and we don't do that anymore because the runs are so much smaller and Mm. which is a real uh, tragedy for this region but that's another story um so to answer your question to get back to the the original question i think with teenagers who are really busy older kids maybe Mm. Winnowing it down to one or two special days a year. Yeah, that, big experience. Yeah. That become the, the family 
tradition or, you know, something you talk about years later. And I mean, to this day, I still go out with my dad, not as often. And I've taken my son. I had a blog post about it, three generations of angels birding. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and and to the Skagit, the usual stomping grounds. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, no, and I really like the idea of um, taking friends too, because then your kid has that investment, and you know they're sharing part of themselves with their with their peers as well, which is a really neat thing. Yeah, and actually, the friends who we took still reference those memories. Yeah. So it, yeah. it's it's uh, it makes an impression. Thanks again, uh, Bryony. This is this is great discussion, and I appreciate you offering your experience and your thoughts. Uh, Bryony Angel is a writer and birder from Seattle, Washington. You can find her stuff, including more thoughts about birding with kids, on her website, Angel with two L's dot com. Thanks again. Thank you. I received an email from listener Quinn Llewellyn of Tulsa, Oklahoma a few days ago that that delighted me for a couple reasons. First, I really like hearing from listeners. It's great to know that this podcast project is getting out there and reaching people beyond the sort of immediate ABA community. And two, Quinn writes that he is a clean slate birder, just getting started. His girlfriend birds a bit. He's sort of into it, wants some advice. This is great. When I started this podcast, I knew that I was going to be speaking to a certain extent to people who consider themselves, quote unquote, serious birders. That, after all, has been historically the ABA's reputation, rightly or wrongly, and it's certainly our wheelhouse, at least. So I'm really excited that people who are just starting down that birding path are finding this show and getting something out of it. That's amazing. Thanks, Quinn. You, You made my day with that. And then I got to thinking about advice. What kind of advice is useful for a new birder? There's classic field guide and binocular advice. I think over time, those have been codified into into law, birding law, tablets brought down from Hawk Mountain, written upon them. Thou shalt get the best pair of binoculars thou can afford. Thou shalt not regret it. There are actually a lot of really great binoculars at all price points these days, budget a couple hundred at least, but know that if you really get the bug, you'll be upgrading pretty quickly. Know thou's inclination towards obsessive activities. Second commandment, get thou a field guide. There are a lot of good ones in North America. We're sort of in the golden age of the field guide. The best one, however, is going to be the one that you use. Sibley and Nat Geo, National Geographic are the biggest names. I like Kaufman for beginners. Shout out to my colleague, Ted Floyd, who wrote the Smithsonian field guide. Uh, I have a lot of guides. Like a lot of birders, I have things that I like about all of them. Go to your bird store or bookstore, look through them, choose the one whose language speaks to you. Start there. If you get hooked, you'll probably be getting the rest for birthday and holiday gifts for years. But beyond that, there are, there are lots of sort of bits of advice out there, things we, we wish we knew when we started birding, things that have been passed on through birding's oral history Bird with folks, bird on your own. You learn different things in both situations. Work on looking like a birder, and by that I don't mean tilly hats and zip off pants, but you know, being aware of your surroundings in that way that is kind of quintessentially birdery. Be aware of your periphery. Notice weird noises and track them down. Stuff like that. Um, how you learn things is often 
quite dependent on the person that you are. We all sort of incorporate and synthesize information in, in lots of different ways. You know, people figure out what works for them. But it is a it is a great question. And I know that among the listeners of this podcast, we have a lot of experienced birders, uh, people that have probably thought about this, people who lead bird walks specifically for new birders and have tips that are, that are really practical. So this is what I'm going to ask. I encourage those of you out there who may have something for Quinn to share. So please share it with me and I will swing back to this topic in a future episode and share some of the more interesting tips I receive. Stuff that maybe something that is a little outside the regular tips that you might give a new birder. You can send those to me at podcast at aba.org. Hit me on Twitter at aba or at nc underscore na. That's nc nate. Or on Facebook, I'm going to throw this question out on our discussion group. Let's help Quinn out and any other new birder who might have come across this podcast who uh, wants to hit the ground running. I hope that helps. Quinn, we'll follow up soon. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast or any of the free resources the ABA provides to birders in North America and beyond, the best way to support it is to become a member of the ABA. In addition to helping us out, you get birding and Birder's Guide magazine all year round, plus discounts to our partners like Video Books and the opportunity to join us for ABA events, among other things. Learn more at aba.org join. Special shout out to Wyatt Flood of Caldwell, Ohio, Judy Colleen of Duluth, Georgia, Joseph Buelltel of Awatona, Minnesota, and Rosemary Flaherty of Sanibel, Florida, all of whom joined or rejoined the ABA recently and noted this podcast as a reason. Thank you so much for your support and welcome to the ABA. If you really want to help us out, and yes, I, I know you are always helping us out, and, and for that I am very grateful. We are getting to the end of our annual nesting season appeal. We are raising money for the ABA's excellent young birder programs. We're trying to get to $30,000 by the end of July. Uh, you can help us out by throwing us a few bucks. Uh, any little bit is appreciated. Get more information at aba.org gift. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon. He's working on a piece for Bloomberg about the economy of twitching, whether the cost outlay in gas is worth it based on the rarity of the bird. Very important stuff. Technical production is by John Lowry, whose groundbreaking expose on the life of Roger Tory Peterson is set to be published in the World News Daily. Were his influential illustrations actually the work of Bat Boy? The result may shock you. Additional help comes from David Hartley and Greg Neese, who have, together, created the most diabolical Spot the Difference puzzle Highlights Magazine has ever published. They take a photo of an alder flycatcher and changed it eight ways to be a willow flycatcher. Can you find all eight differences? Spoiler, there are actually only three. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, and on Twitter at ABA. We are working on a piece for Preserving Your Memory magazine, in which we publicly hope that you didn't notice that I actually did a bit very similar to this a few months ago. And if you didn't notice, perhaps that's a sign of something more serious, like new listeners not going back to listen to the archives. What are you waiting for? We only do two episodes a month. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Till next time. <laughs>